Welcome to Burning Platforms, a fortnightly podcast from the Australia Institute's Centre for Responsible Technology. I'm Peter Lewis, the Director of the Centre. This week, we'll be joined by author and commentator extraordinaire Paris Marx to discuss their new book, Road to Nowhere. But first, our regular catch-up on the latest in the world of politics and tech with Digital Rights Watch Chair Lizzie O'Shea and Guardian Australia Managing Director Dan Stinton. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Burning Platforms. The format is three stories in the news and then a deep dive where we're going to go into Paris's new book, Road to Nowhere, about all things technology and automotive. Um, before we get there, though, um, we get an amazing little aggregation from the wonderful Amy Denmead, but I don't think we've had a fuller stack of stories to go through for a while, um, Lizzie, and we've been changing what we wanted to talk about almost by the hour. Um, and a lot of them are about Meta this week. So we might spend a little bit of time talking about Meta. There's been a very inspirational um, video that's been released by Mark Zuckerberg, the Meta Connect, which if you've got a spare hour and a half, it's better than most blockbusters on Netflix. And there's a lot of moving parts that we might talk about in a minute. But before we get to that, um, Meta's also been in the news um, for allowing censorship in India and then getting busted lying about it. What's going on there? I love this story. It's quite juicy. So essentially what happened is an Indian tech news outlet, The Wire, um, uh, claimed that Meta had permitted a post to be taken down on Instagram that was critical of a BJP leader. So the BJP is obviously the ruling party in India. And uh, this was supposedly done by their chief propaganda office officer uh, essentially talking to Meta about uh, the claim is uh, that the post should be taken down and it was taken down and it wasn't entirely clear what kind of community standards had been violated by the, by the post so there was a suspicion that it was political censorship so the Y published this story and Andy Stone who's their PR guy public policy guy in Washington DC uh, strongly refuted the reporting claimed that the email that the Y was using as evidence of this claim was fabricated uh, and then almost immediately after, a leak came again from Meta, which indicated that uh, Andy Stone had been emailing about how the actual original email had been leaked. So essentially busted for uh, making an accusation that the evidence was fabricated when it wasn't. And it sort of doesn't surprise me that they've fallen into error uh, or put their foot in it when it comes to public policy and PR. But, yeah, I think it's a just an Pulling little example of lying to the public about what they do. But also, um, I think it is a really interesting question how much these platforms censor and how much we don't see what happens behind the scenes. I'm pretty confident that Meta does this semi-regularly, has a pretty good relationship with some of these authoritarian regimes where they're allowed to, to have their business running. But, you know, then on the other hand, Meta loves to talk about how they're pro-free speech and they don't like taking down content. And, you know, there's a lot of right-wing content that is accelerated by the platform and the bias, if anything, seems to be towards the right and conservatives, and that's kind of justified on free speech grounds. So once again, they're being inconsistent in their politics and ethics, and, you know, just, they've just happened to be busted for it this time. There's another one that I don't quite know what we make of. There is an, a court case running in San Francisco involving OnlyFans, which is um, a subscription site for people that like to go deeper into other people's lives. Um, <laughs> is that a fair description? But um, unnamed Meta employees have been ex accused um, 
of working under the table to secretly aid only fans by blacklisting competitors. Um, and then I don't know if we can repeat the names, but a number of very high profile execs were inadvertently named in papers this week, which have ended up in a number of media stories. And I guess the common thread here is the policies that this massive platform implements to justify or or manage the power of their ubiquity is now seemingly becoming a matter for the courts in a whole bunch of different, different ways around the world. The accusation is that Meta permitted OnlyFans content and blacklisted other sites. OnlyFans is, it's true, you can go deeper into people's lives. You don't have to be making adult content, but that is where a lot of people who make adult content, um, that's the platform that they use. So the, you know, Meta's also been known for being uh, a bit prudish when it comes to um, de-platforming certain kinds of content. But the allegation is that certain officials took bribes in order to allow OnlyFans content to remain there by giving OnlyFans a kind of monopolistic um, control of that market uh, at the expense of other sites that did the same thing. I mean, I, I've never seen a situation where lawyers have filed documents that they intended to redact and didn't and then that's <laughs> such a significant uh, set of people who've been named by it. But I, I don't think there's anything wrong because it's been reported in the press, but I don't know whether we'll oh, be Oh, Nick Clegg. Yeah. <laughs> There you go. You've done it. Oh, I've done it. <laughs> yeah, and the bribe, the bribery, as alleged, is pretty, pretty bad. Like sums of money going to somebody's kid, apparently, or an accountant in somebody's kid's name. So you know, it's it, you do wonder how this platform has allowed something like that to happen. It's supposed to be professional. This is a you know, Nick Clegg's a former um, deputy prime minister in the UK. Uh, it's a pretty serious allegation if he's taking bribes and you know, allowing an internet economy to be influenced pretty significantly as a result. Mm. So with all these moving pieces, Dan, the um, the MetaConnect video, which <laughs> some would read as, um, I don't know whoever was playing Mark Zuckerberg's a really bad actor, I'll just say, but almost. What, um, what is uh, your favourite bit? What's your favourite pl- bit? Like it's a plaintive cry to make the metaverse real um, and if we just believe it enough. And look, my, my favourite or my scariest bit is two of my least favourite things, um, Meta and Teams merging together to create a version of virtual meeting hell. But I guess rather than just taking pot shots that are pretty bad but highly produced video, Dan, the if if Meta is involved in so many court cases at the moment just about the managing of their existing data, this bigger, bigger, big, big data play of building the entire infrastructure that everyone apparently is going to... Um, live their life, um, including teleportation, which is my favourite tech. And I wanted to talk to Paris later about teleportation, but Mark Zuckerberg's claiming teleportation in metaverse as well. Where's your brain going on all this? Um, My brain is confused, I I think it's fair to say, but that's not unusual. Um, I I think, uh, look, the common theme of the stories that we discussed at the start of this, (laughs) I think, is that there is a consistent approach to how uh, Meta conducts uh, content regulation uh, or content moderation and the like, and that is that they will do whatever they need to do to maximise their business interests. So in the US, that means that they will allow um, pretty harmful content uh, to proliferate, and not just in the US, but a lot of um, a lot of territories, because that content drives engagement. In India, the laws there um, are very stringent, but in order for fa- Facebook to do business there, then they need to take down some of this content. So they're, just, they're basically just doing whatever they need to do to maximise their business interests. Um, perhaps we shouldn't be surprised. It's pretty concerning, though, because there's obviously real-world harms that come with this. And the, the big issue we've got now is that Mark Zuckerberg is making a huge bet that the the next computing platform is going to be 
uh, VR and AR. And, you know, he's not alone there. There's a lot of people that believe that is the case. Um, I'm going to resist the temptation to make fun of the very awkward scripted video that um, they put out at their um, at their Makes us look right? natural. Oh, it's, uh, it does make us look good, Peter, which is no small feat. Um, so, yeah, we um, don't have legs either, though, I have to say, although I'm just telling you I do have legs. But, um, but yeah, look, I think the, the interesting thing about the, the, what came out of this keynote, um, putting aside the, the, the awful video, is the, the partnership that was announced with Microsoft. And effectively, what this has signalled is that Facebook have, or Meta have made the decision to go in a, the direction very similar to what Google have done with the Android operating system. So they basically want their hardware to be the, the hardware that most consumers use uh, to access the so-called metaverse or, or use VR. And they really are open to working with any software provider to do that. Um, and that's very different to, I think, how Apple are likely to approach it when they release their headset, because they're going to no doubt try and maximize the sales that they can get on the devices themselves and be and, and control the software as well. The reason I think Facebook is making this decision is because if you look at the business model that exists in their current, in Facebook and, and Instagram and the like, it is all about advertising and all about harvesting as much data as you possibly can. And if you partner with Microsoft and in fact, anyone else, but you control the underlying hardware, then you have the ability to collect a huge amount of consumer data, which you can use for advertising in VR and the metaverse. So um, I think that's why they're doing this. Um, I'm not surprised that they're going in this direction. I think it's a really massive boon for Microsoft for what it's worth. Uh, we'll see whether uh, Meta are successful in bringing more people into, into VR because at the moment it's still a fairly nascent, nascent play that's mostly gamers. So Paris, um, I don't know if you've had a chance to have a look at this um, piece of vision, but um, what's your take on the direction that Meta is taking at the moment? Yeah, I, I haven't watched the newest keynote yet. I've certainly seen clips as they've floated around, but I think it's concerning to see, um, you know, the degree to which they're trying to push this on the public, but especially their their workforce. You know, there's news stories out recently that um, Facebook or Meta employees are going to be expected to do more of their work within the metaverse to try to prove that this is something that is actually going to work, right? It's not something that um, is being kind of adopted by the public because it's interesting or offers um, a lot of value to people that they you know want to access, but rather because it needs to be forced onto people through workplace situations in many cases. And it looks like that's what a lot of these companies are going to try to start doing. Um, one thing that kind of stands out to me that maybe bridges a couple of these meta topics. Um, when you go back to his metaverse presentation in November of last year, you know, that really came after the revelations from Francis Haugen around, you know, Facebook telling us a lot about what was going on internally there. And there was a clip at the beginning of that presentation um, when it was presented live that was then cut out of, of a lot of the kind of, um, videos of the presentation that that went online later, where Mark Zuckerberg kind of talks for a minute or two to address these concerns that are that are being raised around Facebook at that time. And he really draws on what Mark Andreessen wrote um, around the beginning of the pandemic when he wrote this essay called It's Time to Build, where he was really kind of championing the power of Silicon Valley in the tech industry. And Mark Zuckerberg essentially said that, you know, there are some people who are concerned about what's happening now but there are other people who are thinking about the future, right? And who are really concerned about trying to build a better future. And Mark Zuckerberg and the engineers around him were placed in that category. And he said, you know, we're going to get some things wrong, but we're the ones who are thinking about the future, not these people who are like criticizing us and trying to tear us down. 
um, and that he, in trying to build the metaverse, was really championing this kind of view. And it's a continuation of what we've seen in the tech industry for a long time, right? This desire to avoid the consequences and the accountability for what they're doing and to keep charging forward with their vision for how society should work and how technology should work um, in a way that really excludes the desires, the interests, the, the well-being of everyone else. Yeah, and um, part of that superstructure, of course, is the um, lack of accountability for what um, appears on platforms. Dan, you've drawn to our attention, there's a Supreme Court case that is looking like they're putting Section 230 of the Telecommunications Act back under the microscope. Do you just want to fill us a bit on what's going on there? Yeah, this is, I've been obsessing about this story because it's it's potentially hugely consequential. So to bring everyone up to speed, so last week the US Supreme Court announced that it would hear a, a very high stakes tech case uh, against Google. Uh, it's a really sad story. So uh, Nahemi Gonzalez uh, was a 23-year-old American studying in Paris uh, and she was killed by individuals affiliated with the terrorist group ISIS uh, when they opened fire in a cafe where, where she and her friends were eating dinner. And in the wake of Gonzalez's murder, her family... Uh, took the curious decision to to sue uh, Google on the basis that ISIS posted hundreds of radicalizing videos inciting violence to YouTube, which is obviously owned by Google. And significantly, the Gonzalez family's lawyers also argued that it was YouTube's algorithms that promoted this content to users whose characteristics indicated they would be interested in ISIS's videos and therefore they, they bore some responsibility. Now, two federal appeals courts have already ruled against the family, but despite this, the US Supreme Court has agreed to hear the case, which I understand is very unusual, but I think this is a very unusual Supreme Court, so I'll put that aside for the moment. Um, And yeah, this case challenges the protection that internet companies receive under Section 230. And I think most people know about this by now, but just in case, what Section 230 does, it, it basically ensures that digital platforms are not liable for the content that individual users promote uh, or, or publish on their, on their platforms, but it also critically allows those platforms to moderate the content without accepting liability for the content. And this is effectively the law that has enabled the modern internet or Web 2.0 and it's enabled social media and YouTube and the like to, to flourish. So what I find most interesting about this case is that Google is being held account- accountable for amplifying this content. So I'm not a lawyer. I'll defer to Lizzie for her legal uh, take on this, but I am. Um, I agree with the view that no platform should be accountable for the content that users create on their platforms. But as soon as a decision is made to amplify one piece of content over another, then that is effectively a publishing decision. And if Google aren't accountable for this, then I'm not sure who could be. I appreciate this is a very wicked problem. I'm, I'm, I'm not saying there's any easy way through it. But again, I think it comes back to we just need these algorithms have become just too important to remain in the shadows and there needs to be some transparency around what they're doing and, and perhaps some greater protections around particularly harmful content. So, um, but what do others think? Lizzie? Yeah, it is a wicked problem. The The analogy that's often drawn, the analogies I should say, is are these platforms like a telephone service where they provide the pipes but don't take responsibility for what happens or what travels down them? Or are they a a newspaper where they are responsible for all the content and they provide the platform as well? And I I think it's actually not clear legally which they are. And in some ways we're seeing a bunch of different cases around the world kind of grapple with this decision. At least in Australia it remains legally unclear. We've had a couple of different decisions that kind of canvass this point in different ways. You know, people may remember the Vola decision about publication of comments on on platforms that then are attributable to a publisher like like The Guardian. But then also... I remember it well, Lizzie. (laughs) 
<laughs> there was another recent decision where um, search engine results produced in response to an, a, a query by somebody um, that if they produced defamatory content in the course of that search, the company, well, Google wasn't held liable for that defamation. So then in the course of that decision, one of the judges actually pointed out that if uh, if we were talking about ad content where Google is paid to, to display an ad, they may take a different view on that point. And each of these activities involve automated functionality, even a search engine result does, but uh, there's varying degrees, I think, in many people's minds about the implication of the, the company, the platform, in the outcome. Uh, I mean, there's also, yeah, there's also different ways you want to incentivize behavior. Like, obviously, it's different if Google's taking revenue from an ad and then they publish an ad that maybe is um, engages in racial hatred in Australia. I mean, that's not prohibited in the US, but, you know, that might be fall foul of our laws here. That feels different to search engine results, which is sort of like a um, more akin to what you assume is a public service even though it's run by a private company so i don't think there's a straightforward answer here but the the supreme court the other component here is just so unpredictable now in the united states that it's very real uh, a very real possibility that notwithstanding this is a multi-billion dollar economy for the u.s they may seek to um to read down section 230 and there doesn't appear to be a congress that's functional enough to deal with that um to find a um a proper alternative in legislative terms and this would i do think right radically transform the internet there would then be a significant onus on some of these platforms to pre-moderate content i don't i'm I'm not sure they're at all equipped to do that so it would be a radical transformation of their business model i mean i'm for radically transforming their business model i'd prefer to do it through the privacy uh, vehicle through limiting the information before it goes into their hands and then they use it to feed an algorithm um but you know i can understand the harm that gives rise to these kinds of cases i'm not sure this is the right tool for solving that problem Paris, it's hard to um, overstate how one law has shaped the history of technology, particularly in your country, but also by association around the rest of the world. Yeah, well, well, I'm in Canada first, first off, so <laughs> not not in the United States. I got States. my wrong North um, American there. But <laughs> totally okay. Totally okay. <laughs> um, yeah, I would say I would say two thirty is something that I have kind of made the decision to to not weigh in on too much. I think generally, um, you know, I think that there's a good argument to be made that there is a good reason to kind of, you know, maybe take a second look at some of these kind of widespread um, opt outs or whatnot that have been given to the platforms when it comes to moderation. But I agree with Lizzie's point that I'm worried that if we did that in this environment, that the way that you know, power structures are set up in the United States right now is you'd have it reshaped in a way that really benefits the the right wing and the far right in the United yeah. States. So um, I'm worried. I think generally, yes, like theoretically, that's a conversation that should be had. I'm worried about what it would look like in practice if we actually pursued it. Because mm. it's interesting to think through what the political drivers for this are going to be given the current Supreme Court, right? Britishness, no? I think that's part of it. Go on. Sorry, Dan. That's right. But putting, the, um, putting this case aside, though, I think where section 230 is inadequate is when it comes to amplification of content i think it's we don't want uh, an internet where every single piece of content has that a person puts up has to be vetted by some other big company i think that's a worse internet than what we've got now but nor do we want a circumstance where the amplification of that content for the purposes of maximizing engagement and advertising dollars is allowed to run without any guardrails which is which is the circumstance we find ourselves in now so that that seems to be the area that we need to fix. Again, it's very technical. It's going to be very hard to fix, mm. but it, they're not publishers 
nor are they phone companies. There's something in the middle, but the amplification of the content is where the harm is is mostly located. I think that's where we need but, to start. But back to our earlier discussion about the metaverse, if those same principles hold, like is there any platform responsibility for anything that happens in the virtual environment that these guys are going to create? I think that's a great question. Like what happens, you know, if someone's sexually assaulted in the metaverse, um, you know, to what extent do they uh, take responsibility for that? And if they don't take responsibility and it feels a little bit like they, they, there's a, a decent argument that they're not responsible for that kind of conduct, then they're under no incentive to create safe environments. That's the that's the public policy outcome, right? We we need to find a way to to incentivize them to take safety of people seriously, while also allowing a flourishing internet. I mean, I, yeah, which is why I keep returning to surveillance capitalism as the key problem. Because if you're interested in engagement, that's your business model. You're always going to be prioritizing ongoing participation in the platform regardless mm. of the harm caused and mm. that's the critical way to stop it in my view rather than necessarily attributing liability for a third party um, that's used your platform poorly I, I, philosophically that's I think the better way to approach it but I, I understand why there's some drive to hold them accountable because you want them to have to to put in place standards there's another aspect to this which is if you get sexually assaulted in the metaverse you probably won't go there <laughs> you know and like there's a lot of people who don't like going on Twitter because it's unpleasant you know there's a lot of people that don't like going on Facebook because it's full there are say of boomers making um you know spreading Unless you've got this to go information. In there for work exactly so there's all those other things right? right but there's an argument that a bad quality platform may not continue but Facebook is kind of the living example of that not being true so mm. I think we shouldn't assume that there'll be a market response to this either anyway we will be diving yeah, deep in the metaverse make... in a couple more weeks sorry go Paris yeah no it's all good um just two quick points on, on what Lizzie was saying I think it's interesting to look at you know, the metaverse that has been created right now by Facebook. Um, and they, you know, from a PR standpoint, say that they're going to take these actions to make it safer than the Facebook platform that they control right now. Plenty of journalists have gone in there and saw that, you know, the kind of stuff that people are getting away with inside Horizon Worlds and, and these various platforms that they have inside the metaverse, um, you know, it's not really lining up with their PR line on, on what's going on there. Um, and then the other point is really... Um, I've actually lost it. So. <laughs> <laughs> Must have been a good one, but you come back to it. Um, I'm just going to quickly throw my offering on the table, um, which is about the politics of the cloud, which sounds like a great piece of literature or something, doesn't it? But it's off um, a terrific piece from Cecilia Recap from the University of London. I'll put the link in the chat in a sec. Her point is Microsoft and Alphabet are both looking at getting into the cloud to prop up failing earnings. Um, we already know AWS basically underwrites Amazon. As Cecilia writes, together, Amazon, Microsoft and Google concentrate around 65% of total cloud infrastructure. The market dominance matters more than concentration in other markets because it entrenches the tech giant's control of digital technologies, which of course reinforces their global power and the value they capture from other businesses in the form of the intellectual rents paid to use the technology. Um, so she ends up calling for something that was music to my ears, which is the idea of thinking about the cloud as public digital infrastructure or public infrastructure. And there'd be a real public interest in thinking through 
what that might look like. Um, she says, since it's impossible to limit digital learning when processing third-party data, corporations should not be the main and certainly not the only cloud providers. On the contrary, a solution could be to build a cloud operator democratically as an international public consortium. Paris, have you come across any of these thoughts around the clouds? And um, what, what's your take? Yeah, it's really fascinating, right? Um, I feel like for a long time, we kind of didn't have this, this critical perspective on the internet and what it allowed, right? The internet rolled out globally. The idea was it's allowing us to access all of this information, connect with people around the world. But we, we I think for a long time, or, or you know, didn't focus as much on the political economy piece of that, which is that it really allowed some major American companies to spread worldwide um, and, and take over um, you know, technology, internet services in many countries around the world. And now when we look at the expansion of cloud infrastructure, we're seeing that kind of um, digital colonialism kind of continued. And this is a big concern in a lot of countries around the world where companies like Google, Microsoft, Amazon are building these cloud infrastructures, these data centers, so that they control you know, really what is the storage of the internet around the world, whether it's in Africa, whether it's in New Zealand, I've seen stories about it. I was in France a few months ago and there was a magazine cover all about the, the kind of big data centers that were that were being proposed to be built across France. I think that this is a question that's becoming more and more relevant. And because these major American tech firms have, you know, really accumulated so much wealth um, over the past number of decades, you know, a whole ton during the pandemic in particular, as we were all using these services, they've been plowing a lot of that money into building out this cloud infrastructure to buying the underwater internet cables that, you know, kind of link up the world to control more of the actual infrastructure of the internet itself. Um, and I think that we need to be paying a lot more attention to that moving forward, especially as we're having these conversations around antitrust and are these companies too big? Do they control too much of, of the internet and the digital services that we use? Well, this is a really important piece of that. Um, and if we allow them to control the infrastructure of the internet, um, then I think that's a really worrying proposition for, for what comes, comes in the future. Yeah, Dan, um, for any business, and obviously one your size, the cloud has basically become an unavoidable trading partner. Um, yeah, and, I, and I, I should mention as well, I mean, I've, I've got a, a background in startups and many of the companies that I was previously involved with, I mean, if it wasn't for the cloud, we simply wouldn't have been able to get these companies off the ground because what the cloud enables you to do is it effectively means that you don't have to have all of this, these, these data, um, this data storage capabilities yourself. And then when there's surge in traffic, you, you effectively can just reap the benefits of that without your, your site or, or app going down. So there is a real benefit for that. You can see why uh, they evolved. But, you know, to, to pick up on what Paris was saying, I mean, they, these are effectively the new versions of the telephone companies or the railway lines, right? Like it's, it's we're now in a circumstance where um, the, the infrastructure of the internet is effectively going to be controlled by three, maybe four big tech companies out of the US. And yeah, I mean, I love the idea of a, of a public company coming up to challenge them. I think that's going to require hundreds of billions of dollars of investment to get there. I, I would love it if Elon Musk- Or government procurement. Or government, yeah. perhaps, sure. But, you know, I, I would love it if, if Elon turned his attention to that instead of buying Twitter for about $43 billion too much than he should have. Um, but, um, but maybe not even, maybe Elon's not the right person. But my point is, I think it's going to require a huge amount of investment that uh, is going to be difficult for one country even to do. That That's the problem. It's going to require a huge amount. So I wonder if it's just better going back to- um, 
or antitrust regulation more in the Brandeisian sort of approach, which is look at the harms that are created, not just to consumer prices, but to control. And therefore, we need to be deeply sceptical about any acquisition that any of um, that these three companies are making, because they're probably get doing that based on insights from the, the data insights they're getting from people using their, their cloud technology. Yeah, Lizzie, it's easy to think of the cloud as quite benign. And I always was amazed when I learned that Amazon Web Services was underwriting all the Amazon store, but they're not totally different universes, are they? No, I, yeah, I mean, I would just add to Jordan's comment in the chat, no, Elon, anything I can respond to Dan. <laughs> Sorry, it was, it, was a, it was a bad We comparison. almost got through a whole hour without mentioning it too, so thank you for that. Oh, Jesus, Dan. I definitely have to echo that sentiment, yeah. My, my, my point, which I probably made oh. terribly, is, is simply that it's going to be hugely expensive for a public infrastructure of any kind, uh, and it's going to, I don't, I'm not sure it's practical is the problem. That's, that's Yeah, but I mean, got, but... surely people say that about trains, surely people say that about water, yeah. sewage and stuff. Like, all public infrastructure is expensive, but you invest in it for a variety of different reasons, partly because you're worried about large companies dominating the political economy, partly because you're concerned about your national security, like even by their own logic, which is not one that I particularly subscribe to, wouldn't you be concerned about your data being owned by a company that isn't based here? Like, you know, there's a there's a national security argument against this, you know. So all public infrastructure is expensive. It's just whether you think that there are good reasons or that the market offering is, is substandard. And I think in this instance it is. I mean, I also think like the development of artificial intelligence relies on data and computing power and at the moment it's really a very small number of companies that will dominate the development of artificial intelligence really any kind of automation and that's permitted by the fact that amazon as being one of these companies has a huge domination huge control of data storage and computing power under our current rules and um you know the way our economy is structured and so there's implications beyond just how you engage as a business with the cloud. There's also whole industries that will only be able to develop because of, through these companies because of the chokehold they have. Anyway, I could talk about this forever, but then I think we've got it's more. probably time to get onto Paris. But, you know, exactly. once we build if it, I the public square, we'll build the an, public cloud. Yeah, if I could provide an alternative, though, for thinking about like a public cloud, you know, it doesn't have to be one country like the United States that, that builds it out for us, right? You know, if we think about the model of, say, the post office, where we all have our national post offices, you know, they provide postal services. And then we have a, an international agreement where, you know, if, if it needs to be sent internationally, there's communications with other, you know, postal services to ensure that that can happen. You know, I think that there are ways to think about this in, in a different, you know, a different setup that is maybe more oriented toward what we would want the Internet to look like in a different kind of future. Terrific. Maybe we'll um, go deep now um, and almost segue, as always. Um, Paris, welcome and congratulations on your new book. Um, also, congratulations on a fantastic podcast. I know a lot of the people here really enjoy Tech Won't Save Us. Um, I'm Thank interested you. in kicking off this discussion with a why. Like, what, you know, why did you decide to anchor your, your book on the automobile? Because it goes out in so many different directions, but it's it. Why did you choose that to be the central point of your your, your thesis? Yeah, it's a really good question, right? And you know, my my focus and when I was originally 
writing the book and, and thinking up the book was really to look at what Silicon Valley had proposed for the future of transportation, right? What in their imagining, um, how we were going to get around in the future. And it became clear to me that in order to proper, properly assess that, in order to properly analyze that, it wasn't just about looking at what has happened in the past 10 years and what is going on now, but rather to look back much further to the advent of the automobile, to when that really takes hold. You know, I look at, at North American and, and American cities in particular, um, but really how that happens, the process through which it happens, whether it is something that is kind of just inherently welcome because the automobile is, you know, invented and then kind of the idea I think we generally have is, okay, the automobile exists and then naturally it's going to roll out because this is the new technology. This is what the future of transportation looks like. But actually, when we look back at that history, we can see that there was a lot of opposition. There was a lot of fighting. There was a lot of debate as to as to how that should proceed, what that future of transportation should look like, to what degree automobiles should be implemented within the city. You know, obviously, in a lot of um, North American cities, Australian cities, of course, the automobile came to dominate in a really significant way, pushing out a lot of other forms of transportation. But that wasn't written in stone, right? It didn't have to be that way. It wasn't necessary. It, it wasn't kind of predetermined that just because the automobile was invented, that was going to happen. And so I thought that going back and looking at that history really kind of denormalized some of the ideas that we have about the automobile today and really set it up well to look at what the tech companies are proposing and how in some ways there are extensions between what the auto companies were trying to achieve you know, in the 20th century and then what the tech companies are trying to do as they move into transportation in the 21st century. One of the things that comes through really clearly is the ability to turn a blind eye to the damage of a new technology in the pursuit of the promise. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we see that going back to the automobile as well, right? One of the things that stood out to me is, you know, in the past 10 or 15 years, we've had a lot of narrative around disruption, right? That these tech companies were going to come in and they were going to disrupt the transportation system and many other aspects of society. But I think when we actually look at the way that we get around and we question, you know, what tech companies have done, I don't think they've actually changed a whole lot. Maybe to some, it, you know, in, in some ways, instead of calling a taxi or waving one down, you might hail one from your phone now, but that's not really a, a significant transformation. But when we look back to the early 20th century and, and mid 20th century, when the automobile was rolling out, that's a real disruption of cities, of city life, of how we exist in the world and, and in these environments, right? And as you say, there was a lot of, especially in the period when that was happening, a lot of ignoring, um, especially among those in power, of the real downsides of that. The people who were dying on the roads and how that really kicked off a lot of opposition to the automobile. You know, later the environmental impacts that come of that, what it does to communities, to environments as they're being remade for the automobile. These were a lot of the questions that were that were, you know, really present as these changes were occurring. Um, and we tend not to think about that today as the automobile has become normalized, as it's taken over a lot of, you know, the means through which we get around. Um, but now when we think about the tech companies as well, you know, a lot of what they were proposing was they recognized that there were these really fundamental problems with the transportation system, whether it's the people who are dying on the roads, whether it's the time stuck in traffic, whether it's the, the contribution to climate change by automobiles, by the transportation system. And they were saying, we have a solution to this problem. We are going to solve it for you by implementing new technologies into the transportation system. And my argument is essentially that when we look at the impact of that, we can see that they didn't 
tend to solve those problems. And rather, they delayed a conversation about real solutions to actually addressing real problems that people have in the transportation system. Fine's book kind of it is really radical, I think, in some ways, I feel, because once you read it and you start to imagine what our cities could look like as opposed to what they do, you're reminded basically every day of it as you walk out the door when you think about how dominant vehicles are, how dominant automotives are, and what might have been different. But I, I actually wanted to talk or to hear you talk a bit, Paris, about um, about Uber. Like one of the more recent developments or articles I saw, I think it was in The Guardian, where they talked about uh, creating barriers to allow, um, to stop pedestrians from crossing the road for fear that they may be um, in, uh, hit eventually by an automotive or an or- autonomous vehicle. <laughs> and um, to allow that technology to exist safely, we would literally create physical barriers for pedestrians because we don't expect um, autonomous vehicles to be able to detect pedestrians. And it's just, again, the whole physical world is being reshaped around a particular form of technology. But your your book as well talks about the death of a, um, a jaywalker, shall we say. Um, I mean, that's a, a, an industry term, Some, a pedestrian um, who was crossing the road. And I feel like there's very little analysis of this that kind of examines the role of the company and the material inputs that go into creating autonomous vehicles. And I wondered if you could just talk a bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, you, you you say, you know, these proposals that we hear every now and then for putting barriers uh, on the sidewalk so that people can't cross and, and kind of disrupt the autonomous vehicle. There was proposals from uh, Princeton researchers that we should be wearing a little kind of um, sensors so that the, the vehicles can pick us up because they're not always the greatest at doing that. And um, Balaji Srinivasan, I believe his name is, tweeted recently that we should just be, uh, you know, making roads for self-driving cars, right? And, and of course, we had this previous experience of remaking the streets for, for automobiles themselves, right? Pushing off every, every other form of transportation and making it just for the car. And, you know, one of the things that seemed very clear to me is that if we're ever going to have autonomous vehicles take over the roads, you know, we're really going to have to remake them in a way that, that works for them. Uh, because the idea that, you know, you're going to have these autonomous vehicles and you're going to have all this kind of other activity happening around them, especially as we've had the realization, the recognition, the the admission from many of these companies that, you know, the level five autonomous um, technology, the, the notion that these cars are going to be able to operate in virtually any environment, any any weather, you know, whatever, whatever you deploy them in. Um, the recognition is really that that's not going to happen or if it is going to happen, it's it's really far down the road. Um, and so, you know, I think that there was a lot of hype around the self-driving vehicle in you know, the first decade of the 2000s, right? This this comes after, um, you know, I guess people in the industry would know that there was a lot of money being put into the development of self-driving vehicles by the Department of Defense in the United States in the late 1990s. Some of the people who come out of that um, then enter into, you know, Google's autonomous vehicle program, these other big tech companies, uh, autonomous vehicle programs. Like you wonder why, all these companies are interested in it right around the same time. It's because it's right after the Department of Defense was putting a lot of money into promoting the development of autonomous vehicles. And you had all these, you know, universities that were working on it, all these, all these engineers who were working on it. So naturally they wanted to get in on it too, because, you know, this was the big moonshot, this was the future. And so for a few years, the narrative was really autonomous vehicles are right around the corner. They're going to be here in five years and two years, and they're just going to completely upend how we get around, right? They're going to solve all these problems. We're not going to wait in traffic anymore. Transportation is going to be super cheap, and you're just going to hail a, an autonomous vehicle at any time that you want. Um, 
you know, no one's going to die on the roads anymore. All these sorts of things are going to be solved because we have this techno solution. Just give us a few more years and we're going to achieve it. Right. And then, you know, there were there were questions, obviously, but there was a, a general kind of uh, acceptance that this narrative was what was effectively going to happen. You know, maybe it wasn't going to arrive exactly on time, but it was going to happen. And then 2018, you know, you have the Uber vehicle that kills the pedestrian in Arizona. And overnight, there's kind of a shift in the whole narrative around um, self-driving technology, around what these companies can deliver. There's a lot of admissions by these companies that actually, you know, this is much further down the line than, than we were previously saying. The exception to that, of course, is, is Elon Musk, who still says it's it's coming. It's, it's next year is he's finally going to release it. And so my real argument is that that whole kind of decade-long process of promising us autonomous vehicles, self-driving cars, and how it was going to solve all these problems was really a delay tactic so that we didn't take the solutions that were really necessary to solve these problems that we have the technology for today that we can use to address the, the real problems in our cities when it comes to traffic, you know, road deaths, environmental contributions to, to climate change, all these sorts of things. You know, we can address these things if we make the political decisions to do it. But the techno promise, um, you know, allows us to avoid having those difficult conversations around politics because the technology is going to solve it if we just wait and let these tech companies do you know, do their magic, essentially. Paris, can I, can I ask, just picking up on that point, perhaps a more hopeful um, take on things, what, what could we do? I mean, how, how could we leverage this moment and the technology capabilities that we do have? Let's, if, if we didn't leave it to the Teslas uh, or Elon Musk or the Ubers of the world, what, what would you advocate for? How could we make our cities um, better and, and less focused around the car that it currently is now and, and perhaps better for people? Absolutely. You know, I think that there's many ways that we can do that. And, you know, just because I criticize the approach of the tech companies is not to say that I don't think there's a role for technology in cities or addressing these problems, right? We just need to ensure that those technologies are developed with the public good in mind, right? With actually solving these real problems and that we do the proper assessments of the technologies to ensure that they're delivering the benefits that these companies are actually promising us, right? I think part of the problem is that these companies like to come out with really big promises as to what they're going to deliver, how they're going to solve all these problems, and then they're not able to follow through on it because they were never really realistic about what they could deliver, right? They were just you know, using their PR lines in order to buy public acceptance for these technologies that they're that they're pushing on the public. And so I would argue that if we're thinking about how we're going to solve these problems, I think that electric vehicles have a part to play in addressing the, the climate part of it, because you're not going to get everyone out of a car tomorrow. Um, and, you know, the climate crisis is really pressing and we need to address that. But I think that also we need to have a focus in ensuring that we actually have real, reliable, affordable, dependable alternatives for people to not have to rely on the car in cities in Australia, in North America, in Canada. Um, so making real significant investments in public transit infrastructure so that you have that reliable alternative, making real investments in cycling infrastructure so that you can get around in that way, in dependable bike parking so you know that if you leave your bike somewhere, it's not going to get stolen from you, and in intercity transportation, so better rail networks, high-speed rail even, so that you can get between cities, not have to worry about taking a car or, or taking a plane or what have you. There are many investments that we can make, but this requires political will, right? It, it requires us to really recognize that there are decisions we need to make, investments we need to make. And when we look back at the history of the automobile, the only reason that the automobile takes over our cities 
is because the auto interests are very influential. Of course, they lobby, but because the government makes a lot of investments in highways and roads in subsidizing the infrastructure that makes that all possible, right? And so if we're going to reimagine the way that the transportation system works today, it's not just going to be by tech companies inventing some magical new technology that solves our problems. The government has to be in there and has to be making the investments, changing the incentives for how people get around. It, it, it comes down to what is the problem you're trying to solve, really, doesn't it? We, we had a great discussion on cybernetics a couple of months ago now with Ellen Broad from ANU, and we were talking about the trolley dilemma. And as the cybernetic person, she said, well, why are we talking about driverless cars in the first place? What, what, <laughs> what are the problems that we're, we're trying to solve when we think about um, how to get around a city um, and I'm also curious with the disruption of the pandemic and work from home, whether those, whether those questions have changed. It's really interesting, right? Because I feel like in the early part of the pandemic, there was a lot of discussion around what our cities were going to look like in the future, right? How we were going to live in the future, if this was going to kind of give us a, a period to kind of reflect on the way that our society works and whether we were going to change things as a result. And then I think that, you know, after about the first year or so of, the pandemic, when a lot of places are kind of coming out of lockdown, going to a new normal. I know it was a little bit different in in Australia because of the border measures that you had in place. Maybe not so different in Melbourne. Um, and it was it was quite different where I was as well because we had um, some border measures here as well. So we lived actually very very normal through much of the early part of the the pandemic. Um, and so you know, I think that that discussion was there. That there was a lot of questioning around you know, the society that we had set up before, whether this was going to give us the opportunity to rethink things. But then I think after we go about a year, year and a half into the pandemic, there's a really strong push to get back to normal, right? To restore what already happened. In some cities, you had streets that were closed to cars and open to pedestrians because people needed to get out. They needed to social distance. They needed some fresh air. Um, and what you saw very quickly as, you know, things started to open back up was that there was a really strong push to ensure that the streets were closed to pedestrians mm-hmm. again, reopened to the cars, you know, this to, to treat this as though it was a really exceptional moment, but it was not going to really change, you know, how we live. We're going to to go back to the way that things were before. I think that there's still there's still a kernel of that, right? And and we can still pick up on it because people do remember that that things can be different. And I think that there is a growing frustration with this new normal, quote unquote, that that we're living, right? Um and certainly some cities have have seized on that. I'm not sure um, the degree to which it, it has happened in Australia, but, you know, cities like Paris were able to significantly expand the, the degree of cycling um, by, you know, accelerating plans that they already had to restrict the amount of car traffic that, that happened on roads. And as a result, a lot more people bike around the city now. You know, Montreal did, did something similar, not to the same degree. Um, but there are opportunities to take advantage of these changes, the openness that people have to to you know, experience change to living in a different way, but there also needs to be some political courage there to face down the interests that don't want things to change because they benefit from the status quo. Yeah, there's a nice little, very classically French phrase, I think the mayor of Paris says, where she wants it to be a city where you can let go of your child's hand. 
um, you know, without obviously being concerned that the, the, the child will be hit by a car. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting, isn't it? Because one of the things about this book as well that I think is compelling is that you can imagine that tech companies are only really responsible for transforming our online spaces. But here's a clear example of how they radically transform our physical world as well. And, you know, you're talking there about, you know, investment in public transit and stuff. And I think Sydney was the first city in the world to experiment with allowing you to put money on your Opal card, your public transport card in Sydney that can then be used on an Uber. And one of the things I think that is interesting about this is here's a private company, like their philosophy is we're going to solve this market problem. We don't need public investment. And they then insert themselves into public investment programs as well and how insidious it is. I think we're kind of looking at the legacy of neoliberalism where the the idea of, of public investment in major projects is seen as somehow passe. And then in fact, we should be leaving these problems to the market. But to my mind, Uber's solution is not one that is meaningful. It in, increases congestion, all this kind of stuff. But I know there's some interest in, from others in the in the in the chat about what you think about ride sharing, Paris. Do you want to talk a bit about that? Yeah, certainly. Um, you know, for me, uh, I'm not a, a big fan. I I've taken an Uber once in my entire life, um, and it was because a friend called it. And I, you know, at that point, you know, it's there. You're not going to say I'm not going to get in it. Terrible right? hypocrite, Paris. It's well. <laughs> right. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Sounds familiar. <laughs> but, you know, yeah, I, I, I think it's, I think it's interesting, right? Because really, when services like Uber, Lyft were were launching, the narrative was really that, um, you know, they really needed to take on the entrenched taxi um, infrastructure, the way that taxi services worked, um, and they were going to make uh, transportation a lot better as a result, right? You were going to have much easier access to these kind of um, on-demand services. And that was going to address uh, traffic congestion in cities. It was going to make it cheaper and more affordable for people to get around. Um, it was also going to reduce the transportation emissions. It was going to be complementary toward transit services. And what we've seen by continual studies in the United States, you know, a few years later, because Uber wouldn't actually release any of its data and, and researchers had to develop ways to, to gather that data themselves, but they really found that all of the promises that Uber made about the services and the benefits that it was going to provide to the public were not realized. Um, in, in cities across the United States, it was found that they increased traffic congestion. It didn't reduce it. Um, it took riders away from public transit. It wasn't complementary toward it. And as a result, you know, if you have people getting around in, in a private car instead of, you know, a bus or a, a subway or something like that, they're adding traffic, right? Because they're taking up more space on the road as a result of that. Um, what they also found was that it didn't tend to serve the kind of underserved populations in the city that Uber said it was going to prioritize. You know, it actually fought for carve outs from the Americans with Disabilities Act to ensure that it didn't have to properly serve people in wheelchairs. Um, and it was found that the people who were best served by Uber service were young, college educated people in cities earning above average incomes, um, you know, which I like to say is, is your general tech worker, right? Finance worker, people like that. These are the people who are generally benefiting from these types of service. And it's not really a surprise, you know, they're the people who are developing the service. So I don't think it's it's shocking to see that they're the ones who are most benefiting from it. And so I would say that there was a lot of promise that was made about these services, but they were not able to deliver on that. And then the other piece of it is, of course, is that, you know, their promise was that it was actually a lot cheaper and more efficient than a taxi service. But what we found is that you know, largely the reason that they were cheaper was because they were losing billions of dollars a year in order to subsidize the fares of those rides. Um, and, and Hubert Horan, who's a transportation consultant who's been following Uber closely, actually argues that the taxi model is more efficient because you don't have these expensive 
headquarters. You don't have these big engineering teams developing these softwares. You actually have a fleet of vehicles that can be maintained in, in a more efficient way than having everyone own their own vehicle. Um, and then the final point there, of course, is that you know what Uber really did was really attack the rights of the workers who were delivering these services, right? And you know, regardless of whether they stick around or not, one of their legacies is going to be trying to rewrite labor codes and labor laws and labor classifications the world over. And that I think is going to have negative um, implications for years to come as other um, companies try to take advantage of these these carve outs if they're able to successfully win them in places around the world. I know there's an ongoing fight in Australia about that, but they've so far been successful in California. They're making good progress here in Ontario and Canada. Um, so I think it's really worrying. Paris, there is, um, I, I wonder if there's an opportunity for governments and community organisations to, to take some of the best bits of Uber uh, and other rideshare companies, though, to some extent. I mean, one of the things that I think that Uber um, has introduced, which is a real benefit, is the ability to, to share your rides with few people uh, who are going in roughly the same direction of you. And that's obviously been made possible by technology. It was something that wouldn't have been able to be done 10 or 15 years ago because you wouldn't have enough information to know who was going from one direction to the other. I wonder if there's an opportunity for, um, rather than what Lizzie was talking about, which is uh, Uber uh, sort of wheezing their way into the public transport system, but the other way around in the public transport system, perhaps adopting some of these more innovative ways of um, a more flexible work environment that isn't just buses and trains. I wonder if that's a way that we could perhaps improve things. Have you seen anything like that happening around the world? So, yeah, it's entirely possible. I would say like, you know, you need to ensure that you have the proper regulations in place to protect the rights of the workers, to ensure that they're getting a fair pay, to ensure that they're getting, you know, the proper classification that um, they, they have the rights that they deserve, right? And that's a real problem with the Uber model right now. You could look at this through the lens of, you know, cooperative um, uh, approaches to delivering these services. I think you would still need regulations on the number of vehicles that can be on the road because that's really what kind of drives down the prices. You have all these drivers kind of fighting against themselves. And it also is part of what creates the congestion because if you just have as many people who are, you know, looking to deliver the service, get onto the, the, the platform, you know, hit the roads trying to find a ride especially in a moment when there are economic crises, when people are, are struggling to you know, afford the, the basics that they need to live, then obviously that's going to, to cause a problem. But I would say that, you know, I think, at least my experience is that there's a lot of taxi companies who have already started to adopt these kind of technological approaches to delivering the rides themselves. You know, this isn't something that only exists with Uber or Lyft or, or ride hailing services, so to speak. You know, this kind of means of delivering the service can easily be recognized be replicated with taxi companies or, or another kind of structure for delivering, you know, what is essentially a taxi ride, what we've long known as a taxi ride, but we've kind of uh, started calling ride sharing in the past, uh, in the past 10 years. Um, so yeah, we can certainly use the technologies in other ways, we just need to have the proper regulations around how they're used around the protections for the workers and all these sorts of things, um, which, you know, we were, we were basically told we didn't need by Uber and Uber's lobbyists. And I think we've kind of recognized the the, the problem with believing them um, when, when they were claiming those things and lobbying in that way. I used to have this great app before technology where I'd put my thumb out and people would pick you up. And <laughs> you into the, but there is a bit where you could do some of this stuff without the tech as well, couldn't you? Uh, I don't know. Yeah, you know, like um, there's certainly no, no um, benefit to the economy of you just sticking out your thumb and, and getting a ride, right? It needs to be uh, kind of turned into a transaction so that it can be recorded by the economy. It can contribute to GDP, all these sorts of things, right? 
<laughs> hey, um, thanks for sharing some time with us so late at night. Um, congratulations again on the book. I encourage everyone to um, make use of our special discount offer, which Lizzie had up in the chat. And um, it's great to see somebody else joining what I think is the most important conversation, which is not just looking at the tech, but the political economy of the tech and, you know, more power to your pen, Paris, and look forward to staying in touch. I really appreciate you uh, inviting me and, and having me to chat. I really appreciated it. Yeah, great. Um, thanks, Dan and Lizzie. All right, guys. Have a great nice weekend. Time. Thanks, everyone. Thanks. Bye. You've been listening to Burning Pipeforms, a fortnightly podcast from the Australia Institute's Centre for Responsible Technology. It was recorded live at a virtual town hall on October 14. If you'd like to attend one of these discussions in real life, you can register at centreforresponsibletechnology.org.au. Burning Platforms was produced on Gadigal Land by Jennifer Macy. Talk again in a fortnight.